We live in a day and age when scandal is a powerful weapon, isn't it? To expose someone's shameful past can actually cost them everything. Just ask Richard Nixon, right? Or you could ask Pete Rose. Or you could ask Bill Cosby. Usually people try to hide their dirty secrets. But scripture is startlingly honest about the checkered past of the nation Israel. And it's honest about the chosen family from which that nation came. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. We've seen that these three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all had moments when they stumbled. Moments where their faith faltered. And even recently we've seen this legacy continued and worsened in the sons of Jacob. We've seen the brutality of Levi and Simeon in their deception and the slaughter of all the males at Shechem. We've heard of the immoral and corrupt actions of Reuben, Jacob's oldest, as he slept with his father's concubine. And then last week we saw the ten sons of Jacob, the older ten, kidnapping and selling their brother Joseph into slavery. It's not a good look if you are supposed to be the people of God, the chosen people of God. They deceived their father and broke his heart. But then we get to Genesis chapter 38, and things get even more sordid. The story of Judah and Tamar that we will look at today involves abuse and deception and even incest. This story is not one that you will probably find in the coloring books in our children's curriculum the story of Judah and Tamar. And it makes us ask the question, why does a story like this belong in our Bible? Do we really need to know the dirty, shameful secrets of Jacob and his family? Why do we need to look for skeletons in their closet? Why did God include such records? How could they possibly be for our instruction and our edification? Well, in these stories, for one, we're forced to look, in a way, at our own reflection, aren't we? We see the ugliness of sin And the reality of the curse, since the time that Adam and Eve fell in Genesis chapter 3, we've seen things in many ways progressively getting worse. Sin metastasizes and spreads. But that's not all we see. It's against the dark background of such depravity that we're able to see the triumph of God's grace. That's why stories like this are in scripture. That's what the story of Judah and Tamar is ultimately about, the triumph of God's sovereign grace. Not even the depravity of Jacob's sons can stop God's redemptive plan from moving forward. I want you to keep in mind the theme of this final section of Genesis, a theme we introduced last week as we met Joseph and started through his story. God's providence ensures the fulfillment of God's promises. That's the theme for the Joseph story. And even though this feels like a detour from Joseph, that's the theme of this account as well. That God's providence, his sovereign and wise control over all that happens in his universe that he created, that he now sustains. God's providence ensures, it guarantees the fulfillment of God's promises. What we find in the story of Judah and Tamar, as well as throughout the life of Joseph, as well as throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the death and resurrection of Jesus, is this, that it's not because of human greatness. It's not because of human power. It's not because of man's righteousness that God's plans will be fulfilled. God gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. And in the process, he sends a message to the world that no one is beyond the reach of his redeeming 
grace. That's why the Bible doesn't hide scandalous sins. The Bible doesn't try to whitewash its heroes of the faith. It reveals the humanity of such people so that we will marvel at the wisdom and the mercy and the grace of our God as he fulfills his covenant promises to his people. And he fulfills his covenant promises even through his people in spite of their failings. So with all that in mind, I want you to keep that in mind as we dive into our text this morning. Genesis chapter 38, it says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. This is after the sale of Joseph that this story takes place. And it almost feels a little bit like a detour. And you might wonder, why are we focusing on Judah and his family? Isn't the rest of Genesis about Joseph? Why single Judah out? We're not told anything much about the rest of his brothers. So it almost feels out of place a little bit to sort of detour and take this rabbit trail about Judah and his family. But there's several reasons why this story is placed here in the narrative of Genesis. First, remember that chapter 37, verse 2 told us, these are the generations of Jacob. The generations of Jacob, not Joseph. And Judah is going to become a key figure in the nation of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have all been passed over as heirs of the blessing, even though they were older than Judah. Because of their sin, they've been dismissed. Judah is next in line. He's the fourthborn. It's through Judah that kings will come. It's through Judah even that the future birth of the Messiah will one day come. Judah is important. The record of how his family survived is actually critical to the life of the nation Israel and even more than that, critical to God's plan of redemption for all the nations. But what chapter 38 will show us is that, yes, all of this will be accomplished through Judah and his family, but it's not because Judah is really that much better than Reuben and Simeon and Levi. In, chapter, in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 38, we see moral decline and a covenantal crisis. Moral decline in verses 1 through 11. Look at Judah's family in 1 through 6. It says it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now this sets the table for the story that's going to happen next. It's, it's about a lot more than just some family history and genealogy. The first sign of moral decline in the family of Judah is that he leaves the covenant community. He turns aside from his brothers in the house of his father and he marries a Canaanite woman. This woman is unnamed, but it's made clear where she is from and what, where she's descended from. You might ask, well, why is this such a problem? Well, if you've been with us through our study of Genesis, you've seen that God has promised to make of Abraham's offspring a great nation. And Abraham and Isaac were both adamant that their sons would not marry into the Canaanite clans that lived around them there in that land. The Canaanites were pagan, and they were a cursed people who were destined to be judged by God, destined to be dispossessed of the land. If Abraham's family was absorbed into the Canaanite peoples, if they lost their distinctive identity, 
they would also lose the covenant blessings and would forfeit the, the land that was promised to them. But Judah doesn't seem to care about any of that. Like Eve back in the garden, we see this threefold statement that he sees and he takes and then he partakes. He goes into her in verse 2. His union with the unnamed Canaanite woman produces three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. We see that in verses 3 through 5. And then we see that Jacob continues his disregard for God's covenant promise. It's not just that he married a Canaanite woman. We see that he takes a Canaanite woman named Tamar as a wife for his son Ur. If you do the the math here, this means that his grandson, the the heir of his household, would be three-quarters Canaanite. If this continues, there will be no tribe of Judah. Judah. Judah's family is in danger of being completely absorbed into the idolatrous and pagan peoples of the land. That's Judah's sin, moral decline in his family. And you know the saying that what you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess? Well, we see that Judah's sons are even more wicked than he is. Look in verse 7, we see Ur's sin. It says, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. It appears that Judah's wickedness is even greater It reflected in greater degree in his sons. We're not told exactly what Ur did, but we know that it must have been severe. Like the people of Noah's day, who who became so wicked that God could not tolerate them anymore and sent a flood to wipe them out. Like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, this wickedness, his wickedness, whatever it was, was so great that God took his life. And this left Tamar a widow. And that's not the end of the sin of Jacob's sons. We see Onan's sin In verses 8 through 10, then Judas said to Onan, go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Apparently, Ur was not just the bad apple, you know, the exception to the rule. The other kids were good kids. Ur was just maybe the black sheep. No, it's clear that Ur was simply representative of the kinds of kids that Judah was raising. Wicked men who disregarded God, disregarded God's promises, disregarded God's commands and instructions. And it ends up that God takes the life of Onan as well, because just like his brother, he is wicked. God kills him for his wicked actions towards Tamar. Judah, the the father of Onan, had instructed him to perform the duty of a brother-in-law. In in Hebrew, that's actually one word. That big phrase that we have is one term. He instructed him to uh, perform the duty of a brother-in-law. That was a common custom of the day. It was practiced uh, among the, the Hittites and other surrounding nations. So it wasn't a new thing, and it was intended to ensure that the inheritance and, the, and the, 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 the blessing would be perpetuated to the family of the firstborn son. Ur had died, and so he could not receive the inheritance. He could not receive the birthright and the blessing from his father. So that would naturally pass on to his children, but he had no children. And he couldn't have any more kids because he was dead. And so as custom dictated, Judah tells Onan to go in and give Tamar children so that the inheritance could pass to the descendants of his oldest son. This custom would later become law for the people of Israel 
became known as Leverite marriage. We see this in Deuteronomy 25, 5. But there's a key word here that I want you to see. As Judah gives instruction, he says, go in, perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up, what does he say? Raise up what? Offspring. Offspring. That word is very Very important. It's a key theological term in the book of Genesis and crucial to this story. Do you remember back in chapter 3? Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they fell and God told them that they would die and have to live under a curse? There was a promise. There was a little kernel of good news that God gave them that through the offspring of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. The hopes for God's people, the hopes for redemption depended on offspring. That Hebrew word zerah that can be translated offspring or descendants or sometimes seed. It was the seed of the woman through whom God would fulfill his promises. He would be the one to crush the head of the serpent. Remember the promise to Isaac and Jacob? The covenant promised that their descendants, that same word offspring, that same Hebrew word zerah, that, would, that, that their offspring would inherit the land. That's the same word. We see this term over and over again. Offspring is both what is promised to God's people, but get this, it's also the means by which this promise would be fulfilled. This is why God commanded Jacob in Genesis 35, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Offspring was pretty important. Important to God's plans. Important for this family. But what does Onan do? He refuses to conceive a child with Tamar. I like how the New American Standard Version translates this verse, that he would waste his seed, Zerah. That key concept here in the book of Genesis. He deliberately refused to get her pregnant. Now, why would Onan do such a thing? Well, very simply, if there was no son in the household of the, uh, of the oldest son, there was no child for him, then the inheritance and the blessing would naturally pass to the next son, to Onan. He knew that if he gave Tamar children, there would be no inheritance for him. So he avoids fulfilling his duty as a brother-in-law. He rejects God's command to be fruitful and multiply. He disobeys the instruction of his father, and he uses and exploits Tamar for his own pleasure, but refuses to give her children. Worst of all, he ignores and dismisses the importance of offspring for the descendants of Abraham. This is why God's reaction to Onan's actions is so strong. He is despising the command and the covenant promises of God. This is not just about contraception. This is about covenant. And what he did was wicked. God takes his life also. But then we see Judah's deception in verse 11. After the death of Onan, it says in verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And Moses kind of helps us know what's going on In the back of Judah's mind, his motives, he says this, For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. The final aspect of moral failure in this whole awful scenario is Judah's refusal to give Tamar, his his son Shelah, as a husband. I mean, if Ur is dead and Onan is dead, he has one more son, and it was now his job to go in and marry Tamar and give her children. But Judah is afraid. Apparently he knows that maybe his youngest son is 
cut out of the same cloth as his older two brothers. And he's afraid that he will die also. Maybe Tamar's bad luck is what he's thinking. And so he pushes Tamar off. He says, why don't you go home, live with your dad. When Sheila's old enough, then you guys can get married too. But he's afraid and has no intention of really doing that. He unjustly sends her home with an empty promise that he never intends to fulfill. In essence, what he does is trap her in a perpetual state of betrothal. I mean, think about, think about for just a moment Tamar in all of this. I mean, think about this from her perspective. She's truly a victim, is she not? I mean, she's lost her husband, her first husband. She's been abused and deprived by her brother-in-law, and then he's been killed as well. Now she's been lied to and manipulated by her father-in-law. Things aren't looking very good for her, are they? Well, in all of this, as we look at it, it's just a mess. The promise of offspring is in danger. Will Judah have any offspring to carry on this legacy of the family of God? How will this crisis be solved? Well, sadly, things actually get worse before they get better. There's a legacy of deception in the family of Jacob. Remember, Jacob has deceived his brother and his father and his father-in-law. He's got a track record of this. And now this legacy of deception continues. As his sons have deceived Jacob, remember in the whole Joseph scenario, now Judah is going to get a taste of his own medicine. We see Tamar's desperate scheme in verses 12 through 23. Tamar's tenacity and her cunning is going to be revealed in what happens next. She's about to take a massive risk in an effort to secure what is rightfully hers. And what is rightfully hers is a child to receive the inheritance. And with that child would come a new status for her as matriarch of the clan, mother to the heir of Judah's estate. So we see what happens here. The the timing of all of this is no accident. Look in verse 12. Verse 12, it says, In the course of time... We don't know exactly how long it's been. The wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. The timing is important here. Judah is recently widowed, and therefore he's a little bit vulnerable to the trap that Tamar is going to lay for him. He's also traveling, and maybe has a false sense of anonymity. You know the old saying, you know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. When people travel away from town, they think they can maybe get away with some things that they would never attempt back home. The reason for his trip to this region was that it was sheep shearing time. This was typically a time of great feasting, and the Canaanite culture employed all of these pagan rituals, these sexual fertility rituals that included temple prostitutes in an effort to bring blessing on the harvest. So in essence, this is spring break, it's party week, and Judah is far from home and his wife's gone. And so that sets him up for what's going to happen next. Tamar dons a disguise and she waits at a strategic place. Look at what she does in verse uh, 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Tamar dons this disguise and she waits. Once again here, we see in the family of Jacob that clothing and disguise is going to be used to manipulate and deceive. What happens in verse 15? We see that when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. 
He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Judah here actually initiates the interaction with Tamar. He says, let me come into you. She asks what he's willing to pay, and he offers a goat from his flock. He does not recognize that the woman he's negotiating with is actually his daughter-in-law. Tamar requests a pledge, an IOU. Okay, you're going to give me a goat, but you don't have any goats with you. How do I know that you're not just going to run off and, and fail to pay? Well, the items that Judah offers as a pledge are personal items, a seal or a signet that was on a cord worn around the neck. And this was used for signing legal documents. He also offers his staff, which would have had a personalized carving on the head. It would have been distinctively his, sort of like a custom license plate, right? Um, to leave these things with her is kind of like leaving a driver's license and a credit card, right? Saying that when I come back, I'll get these things, and then we can make sure that everything's paid for. Well, Tamar accepts his offer, and the narrative quickly recounts what happened without any detail, just the, the bare historical facts that he gave them to her in verse 18 and went into her, and notice this, and she conceived by him. Offspring is what Tamar was after. Offspring is what Judah was withholding from her by not giving Shelah. So now she has secured offspring by Judah. But the transaction was left incomplete, and Judah doesn't understand why. Look in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, apparently he doesn't have a great friend. He's got the kind of friend that'll go and pay your tab for you when you're too embarrassed to show back up in daylight, right? So he sends his friend to take back the pledge from the one's hand, but it says that he did not find her. Verse 21, and he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he turned to Judah and said, he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. He's a little bit confused. He can't find uh, this woman so that he can pay his debt. He'd send his friend, but no luck. To keep asking around would have gotten a little bit embarrassing. Listen, I don't want everybody in the whole county to know that I visited a prostitute, okay? So let's just let her keep those things. It's better just to cut my losses and move on. And he tells his friend, okay, if anybody accuses me of not paying, you know, I, you see, I tried to pay and we couldn't find her. He's trying to avoid some public embarrassment, isn't he? If only he knew the very public and permanent embarrassment that this whole thing is soon going to cost him. We see this in the crisis that emerges in verse 24 through 26. He was trying to keep things secret. But about three months later, it says, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. 
Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Judah calls for punishment in verse 24. After a couple months, Tamar is starting to show, and word is getting around. Tamar has been immoral. It's evident that she's broken her betrothal commitment to Shelah. So she's not just guilty of immorality, she's technically guilty of adultery. There's a legal contract in place that she has violated. And so Judah calls for her to be burned. This is him speaking, uh, not necessarily as the ruler over the clan, because she's in her father's house. This is Judah speaking as Sheila's representative. He's saying, listen, you cheated on my son. You violated the marriage contract. Therefore, you deserve to die. We as the readers see the hypocrisy in all this, don't we? That Judah's the one calling for her death. Judah's holding her to a standard that he himself is unwilling to live up to. This is hypocrisy. There's no other description for it. Apparently, he's fine with sentencing her to a life of celibacy in her father's house, but he himself, when out of town and when he's lonely because his wife is gone, he'll visit a prostitute on occasion. So he calls for her execution, not knowing that he himself is the father. He himself is the one who has slept with Sheila's fiance and violated the marriage contract. Then comes Tamar's revelation. In verse 25, it's sort of a moment of poetic justice as Tamar now plays her cards, right? She finally plays her cards. Now that she's in public, now that everyone knows, she's about to shift the spotlight to Judah in a way that will make him very uncomfortable. She produces the evidence and says, please identify whose these things are. There's an uh, echo here of words we saw last week in chapter 37 when Judah and his brothers returned home They just sold their brother uh, Joseph into slavery. They produce a coat of many colors, very special robe that had been torn and smeared with the blood of a goat. And they present that item to their father and said, please identify, same words, whose this robe is, if it's your son's or not. I wonder if those words echoed in Judah's mind as his stomach sank, as he hears Tamar say, please identify whose these items are. Tamar says, listen, if I'm guilty of adultery, so is Judah. If she's going down, so is he. Her destiny is now tied to his. And she's brought this revelation out in public before everyone who's gathered for the execution of her as an adulterer. Look at Judah's admission in verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila." And he did not know her again. Judah is forced to admit in public that the items are his and that he is the father of Tamar's child. Now the whole whole incident at shearing time is sort of coming back to him. And he's recognizing this is why I could never find her to pay my bill. Perhaps he's also reminded of how he deceived his own father. And we have to ask, why would she do this to him? Why would she... Why would she uh, expose him in public like this. It's because he had refused to give her the children through his son that she rightfully deserved. And so Judah owns up. He confesses publicly and says, she is more righteous than I. Now this may confuse us a little bit. We may say righteous. I don't see a lot of righteousness going on in this story, but this word for righteous can have the idea here of innocence. 
innocence of the charge that he has leveled against her of adultery. He says she is more innocent than I. He's not necessarily making a statement that her deception and all her actions are completely moral and above board. He's rather declaring that she is innocent of the charge of adultery. She, listen, she had a right to children through Judah's family. He is the guilty party. He's the one who deprived her of a husband. He's the one who sent her away with no recourse. And he's the one who propositioned her. And he's the one who left these items as a pledge of payment. He's the one who got her pregnant and violated the betrothal to his son, Shelah. And he confesses it before all. Listen, I'm the one who's the bad guy in this situation. What we really see in Judah here is actually something new. Something new in the son's of Jacob, I think we actually see a spark of repentance. A spark of repentance. Remember when Simeon and Levi are rebuked by Jacob for their sin? Their father says, why have you done this? They've slaughtered the men of Shechem after tricking them into being circumcised. And they're defiant about it, aren't they? They're defiant. They don't acknowledge that anything they've done is wrong. Remember when Reuben uh, sins by sleeping with his father's concubine? It says that Jacob heard of it. His sin comes into the open, but Reuben doesn't confess. Reuben doesn't repent. Reuben tries to make up for his bad deeds by maybe, you know, helping Joseph out a little bit, thinking he can get back in his father's good graces. Only Judah confesses his moral failure. That's what sets him apart from Reuben and Simeon and Levi. By the time we get to the end of the Joseph story, we'll actually see a very different Judah than the one who suggested selling his brother into slavery. I think this is actually the spark that starts a change in the life of this man. And I believe that this is why the blessing passes over Reuben and Simeon and Levi, but does not pass over Judah, even though he has committed these awful sins. It's not that his sin isn't as bad as his brother's sin. I'm going to say this again because it's really important. It's not that Judah's sin wasn't as bad as his brother's sin. It's that his response to rebuke and exposure is different. Judah acknowledges his sin, and Judah repents. Listen, God doesn't use and bless perfect people. God uses and blesses broken and contrite people who confess their sin before God, who own their guilt, and who humble themselves before the Lord. There is surprising grace for Judah here. Grace that is foreshadowed in the birth of his twin sons. We see that Tamar is not just pregnant with one, but with two babies. In verse 27, it says, When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. We see the offspring of Judah here, that the crisis of no offspring, no heirs, it's been averted. Two sons are born, and through some pretty unbelievable circumstances, God has preserved and provided offspring. But this is about a lot more than just loose end informing us that she was pregnant with twins. Perez, this illegitimate son of incest, who surprisingly is not the oldest. This is a reversal of what they would have expected. Usually it was the oldest that was prominent. It was Perez, this son who was destined to be the ancestor 
of King David and destined ultimately to be the ancestor of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ himself. This is not only grace for Judah, but it's amazing grace for Tamar. Put yourself back in her shoes for just a moment. This woman who's been widowed, this woman who's been exploited, the forgotten Canaanite girl who's an outsider, she has become the ancestor of Israel's great King David. In the book of Ruth, chapter 4, we see at the end of another amazing story of God's providence, it says, now these are the generations of Perez. This is the same Perez mentioned here in Genesis. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Israel's most prestigious dynasty will come from the most unlikely of beginnings. There is surprising grace here for both Judah and Tamar. Judah is granted the privilege of fathering the tribe that would produce Israel's kings and Israel's Messiah despite his sin. And Tamar is granted the privilege of being matriarch in the family, mother of Perez, ancestor of Israel's kings, despite her status as an outsider, one who's been overlooked, one who's been used, one who's been marginalized, one who's been treated unjustly. This is her triumph. Though a Canaanite, though exploited and dismissed, God's grace would triumph through her. Not only would Tamar be the ancestor of great King David, but also of his greater son, Jesus, the Messiah. In the genealogy of Matthew, she is listed in an unusual record of family history that, I, that includes several key women. I want you to turn there this morning. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, because we see this same theme being displayed there. In Matthew chapter 1, we see these four very unique women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. In verse 3, we see Tamar. Tamar the Canaanite woman who tricked her father-in-law into incest. She is listed in the genealogy of the Christ. In verse 5, we see Rahab. Remember Rahab? She was a prostitute from Jericho who hid the two spies and delivered them to safety. She is in the genealogy of the Christ. In verse 5, we also see Ruth. Who is Ruth? She is also an outsider. She is from Moab. Moab is the wrong family to be from. Remember the story of Lot, who fathered two sons also through incest? That's where the Moabites came from. But Ruth is in the genealogy of the Christ. In verse 6, we see Bathsheba. Actually, we don't see her name. She's just mentioned as, uh, let's see here, the wife of Uriah in verse 6. Why won't they mention her name? Because the story of David's sin with Bathsheba was so shameful to the people of Israel. They didn't even call her by her name. She's the infamous partner to David's shameful act of adultery. But Bathsheba, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, is in the genealogy of the Christ. The fact that these women are in the lineage of Christ speaks volumes. Normally, women never, never appeared in family trees. It was always traced through the fathers, always traced through the men. But these women are pointed out, and they're pointed out along with their sordid and scandalous past. The redeeming work of the Messiah would give these women dignity and significance. Tamar was a victim. 
Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a pagan. Bathsheba was a political scandal. But the coming of Christ through their lineage shows us that there are no scarlet letters for those who are redeemed by Jesus Christ. Right after this this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, the angel tells Joseph and Mary that you will have a son. You will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. And the angel says he will save his people from what? From their sins. Even the sins of these scandalous women. Women who committed their own sins, but also women who were victims of the sins of others. God's grace redeems and dignifies and restores women like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. The coming of Christ through their lineage shows us there are no scarlet letters for those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. These are the kind of people God loves, the kind of people Jesus came to save, the kind of people that he delights to use in his kingdom. Friends, this is why God became a man. The Son of God took on flesh, wrapped himself in human flesh, and was born of a woman. Jesus is the promised king, the descendant of Judah through Tamar, through Perez, the one who would bring the blessing of redemption to the nations, the blessing promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the blessing of salvation, the blessing of the forgiveness of your sins and my sins, the blessing of reconciliation with God, the blessing of a restored relationship with him. Your only hope to be cleansed from your past, to deal with the skeletons in your closet, to cleanse you from the shame that comes from your own sin and the sins of others against you, our only hope is the blood of Jesus Christ. And God delights to use the unlikely, the unexpected, the most surprising tools of all to accomplish his plan. Why? So that his grace and his glory can be magnified. We don't praise Judah for our salvation, do we? We see God's hand in all of this. His grace, his sovereign grace triumphing over sin over sinners, and using all of these things, working them all together for good. This story is meant to instill hope in us. You might have wondered as we're reading these verses this morning, how can this text actually be encouraging to us today? Well, I believe it is. As ugly and as tragic and as heartbreaking as it is, this story is meant to instill hope in our hearts, hope for sinners and saints alike. There's hope here for those who are shamed God's grace is greater than your past. There's people in the room, we come from all different backgrounds, all different experiences, all sorts of different stories, some of which we'd be ashamed if anyone knew. But God's grace is greater than your past. He is a redeemer who washes and sanctifies, and you are not useless in God's kingdom. Do you identify, perhaps, with some of the women listed in this genealogy in Matthew 1? Maybe you feel dirty or defiled, or undeserving because of your background. Maybe you've been sinned against in horrific ways. Or perhaps you're guilty of sinning against others in ways that you can't bear to even think about, let alone talk about. The good news is that there's room in the family of God for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He does not minimize sin. Paul says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
It's a hard text, and it's a true text. God's grace does not mean that sin is ever minimized. But Paul continues because that's not the whole story. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, by the power of his Spirit, God now offers us cleansing and forgiveness and healing and a new identity As new creations in Christ, he causes the old things to pass away and causes all things, including us, to become new. Though our sins are as scarlet, we can become white as snow. There are no more scarlet letters for those who are part of Christ's family. There's no more shame, Paul says. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you, are you in Christ Jesus this morning? If you are, then lay your shame at the foot of the cross and walk in hope and freedom and joy because it's all been dealt with. You are redeemed. If you are outside of Christ this morning, if you're still walking in your own strength, if you've never confessed your sin and repented of your rebellion against God and received by faith the cleansing that comes through Christ's blood, then I'm offering that to you this morning. Not just me, God is offering that to you this morning through his son Jesus. Will you come and believe? Will you trust in Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself? You cannot cleanse your past. You cannot atone for your sins. You cannot make yourself right with God. Only Jesus can do that. And he will for all who come to him. But you must lay down your pride. You must lay down your self-reliance. You must confess your sin and trust in Christ, and he will save you. There's not just hope for those who are wrestling with guilt and shame. There's also hope this morning for those who are despairing. For those who are despairing, I want to ask you this morning, are you discouraged by what you see in your life? Maybe by what you see going on in the world around us, the culture around us, perhaps even by what you see going on in the modern church? Do you look around and see how bad things are and think, God, where are you? What are you doing? Aren't you going to fulfill your promises? How can you let things get so bad? It's tempting for us to think that we are beyond help, that we are without hope because things are so bad. If your soul is despairing this morning, I want to encourage you that God is able. Consider the sovereign grace of God. In his providence, he's able to take this family, the family of Judah, and his kids, And this Canaanite woman, all of their failures, all of their mess, and he's able to bring out of that salvation for the world. If God's able to do that then, do you think he can work in your life? Do you think he can work through your family, broken and dysfunctional as it is? Do you think that he can work through the modern church with all its warts and blemishes, with all our insufficiencies and failures? Do you think that God is wringing his hands because he looks at our culture and he sees the things going on in our government, the things going on in our society, the things going on in our world? Do you think God is going, oh no, I wonder how this is ever going to turn out? You know where God is today? He's the same place he was when Judah was running around being so foolish. He's on the throne. He is on the throne. 
And he says, I will accomplish all my purpose. He is sovereign and he's gracious. And we can trust him. Do not despair this morning. If we give in to the temptation to wallow in despair and discouragement because things around us are so bad, do we dare to look God in the eye and say, I'm just not sure if you can really fix all this. God forbid that we would give in to that temptation. Be encouraged this morning. Find hope in the goodness and the grace and the providence of God. It is through the providence of God that he brings all his promises to fulfillment, including the building of his church, the establishment of his kingdom. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to make all things new. And everything that is broken and dysfunctional and unjust now will one day be put right. You can bank on that. God always keeps his promises. God is able to bring his good purposes to fruition in your family, in this church, in our society. And we can trust him with that. Have hope this morning. Find hope in the goodness and the grace and the providence of God. His providence ensures the fulfillment of his promises. We can be confident this morning that his sovereign grace can triumph over sin, that his sovereign grace has preserved the chosen seed here in Genesis, and that his sovereign grace means redemption for sinners and privilege and dignity for those who were formerly outsiders, which describes all of us. Our God is a God who's faithful and sovereign, a God who's to be worshipped, a God who is to be trusted for his mercy and his love and his grace. God, as we read some of these stories in the book of Genesis, it's heartbreaking and at times even revolting to see the ugliness of human sin. But God, we recognize in these portraits a little bit of our own reflection. We too are a people who far too often do not treasure your promises a people who do not keep all of your commands. A people who sadly compromise. But God, we also see in this story that you are greater, that your grace is greater than all our sin. It is marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. God, I pray that you would give us hope this morning. Hope for those who are struggling with guilt and shame as well as hope for those who are discouraged because they see the brokenness all around them. Pray, God, that you would lift our eyes and our gaze and fix our gaze on you. Let us see your glory and your goodness. Fill us with faith this morning. And God, for any who are outside of your grace this morning, any who do not yet know you, who have never trusted in the good news of the gospel, I pray that today they would confess their sin and receive the grace that only you can offer. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.